0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe,
1: And I'm Brenna. And I'm a Merlinian.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Are you now?
1: (laughs) I'm the prime Merlinian
0: you know it just does not roll off the tongue <laughs> the way that i think they think it does these four screenwriters
1: <laughs> oh my gosh yes yeah, so this is a mini folks but we're gonna talk about a movie today we're gonna talk about the sorcerer's apprentice
0: yes it is the disney film with Nicolas cage and jay baronshaw and we're talking about it because it's somehow 10 years old
1: yeah apparently i mean allegedly
0: Um, (laughs) no i mean factually
1: (laughs) (laughs) so we're gonna talk about that which is based on the poem that that scene in fantasia with all the brooms is based on
0: yes well said (laughs) bretta (laughs) we are on top of our game today Mm -hmm. aren't we
1: (laughs) oh yeah we totally are and we're gonna do a little bit of homework and we're gonna do a little bit of housekeeping right joe Yeah, yeah, Yeah. a
0: couple of people have written us some nice emails and we want to just make sure that we're addressing them, yeah, and talk a little bit about what we've read because we haven't done that in a bit.
1: In a bit. All right,
0: so why don't we kick it off with homework?
1: Let's do some homework.
0: Okay, what have you been reading?
1: Well, can I start with what I've been watching?
0: Yes, because I know you're dying to get it off your chest.
1: I'm so bummed out, Joe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Unhappy, Brenna.
1: Way back when we did our binge-worthy episode in january yes i was so excited Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there's a reboot of ghost rider out in the world
0: this is on disney plus right
1: apple tv in fact my friend okay and it launched in november so i had been kind of saving it to watch because i loved the original ghostwriter and so for people who i don't know like had social lives in their tween years and didn't watch ghostwriter (laughs) ghostwriter (laughs) was a pbs show about these kids in new york city who bonded over the fact that they could all see a ghost in the library he would come into library books and like mess up the letters to communicate with them and so he would help them solve mysteries
0: right i thought that there was a mystery element to it
1: it was so good (laughs) (laughs) it was so good it was just a really charming show i loved it as a bookish nerdy kid i found it really relatable content it was made by children's television workshop which the folks who make sesame street and the bbc so you know like people who know how to make good tv
0: right So what you're saying is it's overdue for a dark and gritty (sighs) remake.
1: Oh, God. So it was on in the 90s. I want to say 1990. I think it was done by 1995. Definitely an early 1990s TV show. Very much sort of set in Brooklyn. Very much all about literacy and learning and reading Mm -hmm. and the way that that opens up your world. And also crime. Right.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As a sidebar, last resort kind of entertainment piece. Yeah, time. exactly.
1: <laughs> and what was interesting about the structure of the show back in the day was that each season would be make up, made up of a series of cases. And these were long seasons. Like season one had 34 episodes, Joe. Oh,
0: yes. Back in the day. <laughs> back
1: in the day. But what they would do was each sort of case would cover four or five episodes of the series so it wasn't like an in and out it was like a sort of long sustained kind of problem solving sort of theme
0: right it had a bit of an
1: arc it had a bit of an arc really well regarded for being an early exploration of diversity on screen like the kids looked like a group of kids who would hang out in brooklyn together
0: Hmm. okay
1: and oftentimes the shows dealt with the kids and their cultural history, whether it was, you know, there's a Vietnamese character and there were Latinx characters and so, and that was part of the show. It wasn't just like, you know how oftentimes we see a person of color put into a role and they it's never mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. It never becomes a part of the narrative. That wasn't the case here. It was a really well done show. Also, Samuel L. Jackson played Jamal's dad. Just okay, so you,
0: you've told us a lot about the 90s edition. What's your read on the
1: new one? Sucks. <laughs> sucks so hard
0: (laughs) okay now why
1: (laughs) i think a couple of reasons one of the things that was interesting about Ghostwriter is there was a little bit of animation insofar as the ghost was animated and he would animate the letters on the screen but there wasn't a lot of like additional extra special effects or whatever
0: right they weren't relying on razzle dazzle
1: no whereas this series the first case which takes two episodes to unravel it's sort of set in the world of Alice in Wonderland and so all of these released characters from Wonderland interact with the kids in their own world.
0: Oh no I'm already forming a mental picture.
1: Yeah and the same thing the second case is the Jungle Book same thing.
0: Right okay so you said it's on Apple but it sounds like they're only referencing Disney animated films.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I only got through the first two cases and then I gave up so I'm not sure where else they go.
0: Okay, so too heavy an emphasis on like animation and probably not great animation.
1: Yeah, and also one of the kind of cool things about the original was its reliance on the library and its engagement with the idea of sort of libraries as not just places where you get books, but places where you like build community. Mm -hmm. This show is instead centered on a bookstore, which kind of changes the vibe a little bit.
0: Definitely. It's a commercial space. All of it's a, a
1: commercial space. Yeah. And oh, I don't know. I just really was bummed out to see it focus so heavily on kind of reinterpretations of individual stories in literature rather mm. than literacy as this key that unlocks your ability to understand the world, which to me was really what the original series was about. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's a bummer. Don't bother. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, or maybe if you don't have a strong connection to the original property, then it might resonate a little bit more.
1: Maybe, but like, oh, the acting's not very good.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we're just gonna say stay away from just it then. Don't bother. Okay. It's, uh, it's a real bummer. Yeah.
0: Well, that's sad. Yeah. You'll always have the original.
1: <laughs> I will. I gotta find it if there's a place to stream the original. I was hoping that Apple TV would also get the rights to it, but that does not seem to be the case. Right. Or they're not interested in airing it.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Anyway. Okay. Bummer, everybody.
0: <laughs> so that's a pass on that. It is. Also, you have now used up 7 minutes and 50 seconds on the <laughs> thing, so.
1: Talking about a show from the 90s, sorry. Yeah. Seriously, I know though, you're on vacation. Right. <laughs> But write in if you love the original Ghost Rider. Okay, Joe, talk about your homework.
0: <laughs> okay, so I have amazingly enough managed to actually read something. Yeah, and Brenna, you'll be so excited for me. I read Angie Thomas's On the Come Up. Oh,
1: it's so good.
0: Yes. <laughs> now this was an interesting process because I really, really enjoyed The Hate You Give. Yeah. And I went in thinking, okay, it's Angie Thomas. It's going to give me the same kind of emotional feels.
1: Mm. And it
0: does, but it doesn't. It's very different. They're very, very, shockingly enough, they're completely different books. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) This one, I think it's not just a more mature text, but it's a text that proves that Thomas is less wary of writing characters that are likable. Mm Mm-hmm we've had a lot of conversations over the last like year and a half of doing this podcast about the reluctance to make female characters in particular in YA unlikable. Mm-hmm. They have to be prim and proper or they have to be bad girls. Mm-hmm. And I found that's not the case. There were just so many times where I was like, what are you doing right Mm. now? You're making the absolute worst decisions and it's affecting everyone that you know in really negative ways. Yep. And I'm still on your side. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But It can sometimes be a challenging experience from the position of a reader because it's just so obvious that this character isn't thinking through what the consequences of her actions are going to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's all really, really fair. It's a very complex read. I think it's a much more sophisticated book than The Hate You Give, which... We all know I adored, but I think that this is much more complex. The thing that really impressed me is how clearly distinct the narrative voice is yes. from Star's voice in the oh, you yeah. give. Yeah, which as you know, I know I, I beat this drum a lot, but I really do think that that's a sign of a good writer when mm-hmm. their characters stand independently of each other. So clearly. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved I loved on the come up. It's gonna be a movie.
0: And honestly, I think that was one of the most surprising pieces because the hate you give is challenging material. I mean, I think if it hadn't have been optioned for a movie by now, it would have been in the wake of Black Lives Matter and all the recent political movements that we've been mm-hmm. experiencing. Mm-hmm. But On the Come Up is a book that addresses some pretty serious racially charged incidents like this isn't a portrayal of black communities that is like it almost leans into stereotypes that Mm. I think white audiences might traditionally have and it problematizes it and it complicates them but it still isn't glamorous in that way, right? I was surprised to hear that it had been optioned as a film because I think that's going to be a very tricky line to ride if you're looking to make a movie for a mass market audience that's going to succeed financially.
1: I think you're right because one of the things I really appreciated about On the Come Up is I absolutely did not feel like it was written for me. Like I did not feel like it was a book written for nice white ladies. (laughs) No,
0: mm mm-mm. Almost like here's a rude awakening. White audiences deal yeah. with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it was a complex read. It challenged me in a lot of ways. It made me look at myself in the mirror in a lot of fascinating ways. Mm-hmm. Almost more so because I know I was not the primary audience for it, and that worries me when it translates to film. We've talked in our Hate You Give episode. I did not love the compromises that were made in the film version of the Hate You Give, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm nervous about it for On the Come Up.
0: As you know, I've been following Angie Thomas on Twitter. She's and
1: the best.
0: She's fantastic.
1: Did you see her taking Disney on?
0: This is the thing, <gasps> is that she clearly did not enjoy the experience. And we've talked a couple of times, particularly when we were looking at the Percy Jackson mm-hmm. adaptation, and how it can sometimes feel a little ungrateful mm-hmm. when authors talk about how they don't like their adaptations. But in this case, it really sounds like Angie Thomas...
1: She felt sidelined as a black creator. It's very clear from her right. Twitter feed, and she felt like Disney didn't know what to do with that very complex story.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The new movie is not going to be made with Disney, but no, I hope this means like I'm I'm happy to see that we're not in that Percy Jackson situation where it's like oh I'm just writing off any further adaptations of my works and. Mm-hmm. We've now, since that episode has even dropped, it's been announced that Percy Jackson's going to be a TV show on Disney+. Plus. But I'm hopeful that this means that Angie Thomas has found a way to retain mm-hmm. greater control over her product and that we're going to see a faithful adaptation that she feels good about.
1: Yeah, I agree. I hope.
0: Okay, so that's what I've read. I read on the come up and I loved it. (laughs)
1: Because it's so good. I read a book and the only reason I'm really gonna mention it because I promise not to take up super too much more time um, is because you have also read this book, Joe. (gasps) What's this? I read This Is Where It Ends by Marie K. Nykamp.
0: Okay, refresh our memories.
1: Goodreads tells me that you read it in 2016 and gave it three stars. (laughs) like
0: the name sounds familiar and yet I'm (laughs) drawing a complete blank.
1: I'm going to give you the conceit and you'll remember it I think probably immediately it's a book that takes place during a school shooting during the 54 Uh, minutes of a school shooting
0: right from the perspective
1: of four students who are intimately connected to the gunman
0: yes okay I firmly remember feeling good about certain aspects of Mm -hmm. it and not others not so much
1: honestly you read a very thorough review on Goodreads it's very helpful okay (laughs) Uh, i so i read this over the weekend because i was just i was hungry for a quick and compelling read and i don't know if your library ebook thing has the thing where you can search by what people have just returned but this was in the just returned list so i grabbed it okay you know me i like a conceit so i really enjoyed the idea of the whole narrative taking place over the 54 minutes of Mm -hmm. the shooting from the perspective of these folks who all are connected without it being the gunman's narrative, which I'm not interested in and do not want to read. Mm -mm. I thought it was very well done in lots of ways. Okay. You were very disappointed with the bummer ending. It is a bummer ending. And the fact that it's very emotionally manipulative, which Um, it's a book about school shootings. So I think they're all going to be to a certain extent, but nobody gets a happy, well, nope everybody's life sucks at the end and right. um, and the extent to which that is underscored by certain choices the author makes you really had an issue with okay and i agree like i think that the author ends up being quite heavy-handed in a kind of universe level punishment of these characters okay but i will say i think it's a fresh take on The idea of school violence. I think it's a compelling choice to share the narrative across so many different characters with very different relationships to the gunman. Mm -hmm. And I really Liked the aspect of it being set in a very small community and the way in which that's going to reframe the community itself. So Mm -hmm. across the board, I think it's a worthwhile read. And it's, I mean, it's definitely a triggering read. And certainly if you've got any issues with gun violence, it's a very bloody book. There are 34 fatalities and 25 additional casualties. So I hope it's never a movie because I don't need to see that yeah but it's a quick and interesting read and i will say that buzzfeed paste magazine book riot and professional book nerds all named it a best book of the decade
0: yeah i remember i got a ton of really positive press i think the reason that my review is a little bit more not negative but the reason that my review is a little bit lengthier than i would normally write is i think i got an arc
1: you did yeah
0: okay I remember it being worthwhile, but I do struggle with things that are so blatantly out to manipulate my emotions. Mm-hmm. I don't always appreciate it.
1: No, and it definitely is. I'm also concerned because it's one of those things where the author writes a review of the book too, which I always find really troubling. Don't do no. it.
0: Yeah, no, don't to do it. Dear
1: authors, if any of you listen to the show, please do not review your books on Goodreads. It's super unsettling.
0: No. You know what? Hopefully you're satisfied with it and that's why you yeah. get published. <laughs>
1: exactly. Anyway, if you're looking for a quick read and you are interested in getting into some complex feels, I recommend it. But uh, yeah, avoid it if that's not your thing right now. Fair. Very fair. Yeah. Uh, okay, shall we
0: move over to some listener emails?
1: Um, Joe, maybe we should start with something that we've been talking about off the air, but we haven't really shared with listeners yet. Okay, And that is the fact that we don't currently do a land acknowledgement on this show.
0: No, we do not. And for listeners who might be living outside of a Canadian or even a North American context, a land acknowledgement refers to the fact that we, as typically white people, are on indigenous land. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Canada, it is an artificially constructed nation state. It was colonized by the French and the English and we eradicated to near genocidal levels indigenous people across this quote-unquote country by displacing them, putting them onto reserves, and then treating them absolutely horribly to the point that we are still making reparations and probably will continue to basically for the future.
1: Yeah and, and the land from which we work is primarily what we in the territory now known as Canada call unceded territory which means that it was never never ceded it was never legally handed over and so it's an acknowledgement that we recognize what should be a precarious status on this territory. Joe and I both work in universities and in Canada in a Canadian context land acknowledgements are very commonplace in Canadian universities Mm mm-hmm i talked about this at work recently i struggle with them not because i am not a grateful and contrite settler not because mm-hmm. i don't think land acknowledgement conceptually is important not because i'm not grateful to live and work as i do on the Sweatmagulu territory i worry about land acknowledgements as a rote practice right yes i sit through a lot of very wrote land acknowledgements where we then go in to talk about things that have nothing to do with indigenous pedagogies or acknowledgements of a different worldview like mm-hmm. it's really quite something to to listen to somebody rhyme off a land acknowledgement and then launch into a conversation about like copyright or academic yeah. integrity or any of these other large concepts without acknowledging that there are multiple ways of knowing right
0: mm-hmm
1: and so I often struggle with it because I don't want to do it performatively. Yes. But the flip side is that I also don't want to not do it. So Joe and I have been talking a lot off air about what a what a territorial acknowledgement should look like for this show and how we can then embody the values that we assert in our territorial acknowledgement in the way we build the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm of the same mindset as you that I've sat through too many, like someone pulls out a slip of paper and reads off a couple of sentences and they don't sound at all impassioned Mm -hmm. and they haven't made it specific to either the event or themselves as individuals Mm -hmm. and then it literally just seems like a white person doing a terrible job of acknowledging something very, very significant and important.
1: Well, and that they're not going to change anything about their practice, right? Absolutely not. Ticking a box because somebody told them to, but they're not embodying it. No. When I do them at work, I often talk about it in relation to my own history as a scholar and the freedom that I've had to move about these territories, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is something happening in direct contrast to the state's willingness to meaningfully acknowledge, repair, make changes to their relationship with indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I see that as a kind of a personal conflict between the career that I've chosen and my, my philosophical beliefs and something that I think about a lot. But, you know, Joe and I have come to the conclusion that's not a reason to not do one. So you're going to hear us moving towards a territorial acknowledgement in the coming weeks. I think that one of the things we want to do is we want to do it well, and we also want to think about how we're embodying those ideas in the way we talk about texts as well.
0: Yeah, so we've got certain philosophical bents for the show, you know, in addition to critically unpacking texts. You've heard us talk about how we're trying to be more informed culturally in terms of like diversity and stereotypical representations. Yeah. So I think this is just kind of a natural extension of the work that we're already trying to do. But we want to make sure that it's personal to us as individuals, as well as the show, and that we never make it a performative or rote piece. So mm-hmm. we want it to have meaning to us as co-hosts of a podcast, as well as hopefully listeners.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at with that, just to let you in a little bit on the conversations that we're having. We're definitely interested in your experiences with Territorial Acknowledgements, which particularly interested in what Indigenous listeners might want to see out of a philosophical approach to the show. So yeah, let us know. And maybe that's a good segue into talking about some listener mail, Joe. Mm-hmm.
0: So we have gotten a couple of emails from different folks. And we're going to do this quickly, just because we we thought we had a lot of things that we wanted to talk about. And it turns out we just had a bunch of really nice listener emails.
1: It, and also, we had to save my seven minute ghostwriter spiel.
0: Yes, this is true. <laughs> Couldn't cut a second from that yeah. <laughs> <Rose Reiter> conversation. <laughs> so, we have heard from Andrew, who wrote in to ask us to consider a book. Uh, and it kind of takes off of the same vein as Never Have I Ever. So, this is a book by Garinda Chadda called Blinded by the Light. In this case, Blinded by the Light, Andrew says that it's inspired by a real-life journalist love of Bruce Springsteen. And it sounds like it does delve into some of these familiar YA tropes. So there's a dream routine, a traditional parent, there's an encouraging teacher, but it does have that factor of filtering it through a person of color. There's a musicality to it.
1: Hmm. Andrew
0: said that this could be a potential mini for the future if we're looking for something interesting to check out.
1: Definitely a little bit different. I like the idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then coming on the back of the last minisode where we talked about some indigenous reads and some lesbian reads... It looks like Andrew actually had a couple of recommendations to build off of our trans discussion. Mm. So he's recommending that we check out a book called Felix Ever After, which would have made my forecast list, but it had actually come out, I believe, in June. Okay. But it's the story of a black trans boy dealing with an anonymous troll, as well as a quest to fall in love, which are like staples of the genre, and I love them. (laughs) True, true. This is very much uh, another book that got a lot of really positive reviews. People were very excited about it. I believe it's an own voices story, but okay. don't quote me on that. But um, Andrew did reference it as kind of being on par with Stay Gold, which is one of the reasons he recommends it.
1: Right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, and we also got an email from a new listener, or at least.
0: I think first, first time, time writer, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Matthew, and uh, Matthew is actually a big Joe fan because he listens to both your podcasts, Joe. Ooh, mm-hmm.
0: my crossover is so small. The Venn diagram is very tiny, so I always <laughs> appreciate people who listen to both.
1: <laughs> and yeah, we were talking. He's talking about sister to the traveling pants in this email because we had asked, you know, did anybody else feel connected? to Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and we had kind of said like, maybe this is just like a white millennial lady kind of thing. Yes. And uh, Matthew says that as uh, a queer teen, he really found Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants meaningful because the importance of friendship and the way that friendship bridges so many traumas and problems was something that he found really deeply meaningful to him. Mm Mm-hmm. He also brought up this great example that I love because we were talking about how texts can resonate and how that often impacts later readings of them. He said, an angry 14-year-old reading Catcher in the Rye will potentially connect resonate with the text differently than a (laughs) 30-year-old. It's true.
0: I feel like we're constantly discovering that ourselves.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is true, but it also reminds me of my number one piece of life advice, which is if you meet someone who is over the age of 22 and their favorite character in literature is Holden Caulfield, you should run should run and run, so mean. And run and run and run and run and run oh dear it's true joe it's true
0: i think we all just sort of hope that people grow out of their association with holton caulfield
1: yes around yeah. the age of 22
0: <laughs> very funny
1: uh, Matthew's got it's really quite a lovely email and it goes on about a whole bunch of things around our Harry Potter episode some recommendations for you Joe but I'm gonna finish up with a mini idea that Matthew shares which is to learn more about the history and evolution of YA as a genre this is definitely something that we have talked about on the show in fact we'll link to that episode in the show notes just so it's easy to find but I think one thing we could probably do more of, Joe, is contextualize more of our books that we talk about in terms of the history of YA and sort of maybe knit that quilt a little bit more carefully as we go ahead.
0: Right. Yeah. It's been an interesting process because so many of the texts that we cover do end up falling in the 90s and into the 2000s, because of course, that's when Hollywood realized that they could just make a bunch of money off of Mm -hmm. the teens again. Mm -hmm. But I think it's always interesting when particularly we talk about an older book that has been adapted into a newer text and how that speaks to potentially two different interpretations of what teens and YA looks like. And I'll be keeping careful attention to that as we do have a couple of older books that are coming up throughout the rest of the year that have been made into newer adaptations so I will flag that for future discussion.
1: For example Joe mm-hmm. what about a poem written in the 1890s <laughs> and then adapted into a 2010 film starring Nicolas Cage <laughs>
0: Yes, and I should reveal the caveat right off the top that The Sorcerer's Apprentice is probably closer to a new adult text as opposed to a YA or teenager text because we are dealing with a 20-year-old protagonist.
1: This doesn't feel like a movie for 20-year-olds, though, Joe? I don't
0: know who the
1: audience <laughs> for this film is.
0: So, dear <laughs> listeners... I sprung this quite surprisingly on Brenna. I don't know that she knew what she was signing up for when I said, hey, we're going to cover this random Nicolas Cage magic movie. Mm -hmm. But part of the intention was that it was a good excuse to revisit quote unquote male oriented YA Mm -hmm. because we've had our struggles with it in the past, most recently with Artemis Fowl
1: oh yeah so
0: I thought that this would be a good opportunity to see what a really big budget theatrical version looks like because of course part of the reason that Artemis Fowl does not work is I think because they realized they had a stinker and that's why it (laughs) went straight to Disney plus sure let's blame COVID but that (laughs) movie was never going to work whereas here with the Sorcerer's Apprentice we've got a fairly superstar director in John Turtletop we've got an A-list Whether or not you want to quibble with this, we've got an A-list actor in Nicolas Cage, who at the time was very much still a box office draw. The two had previously worked together on National Treasure.
1: I was going to say this is right in the era of National Treasure, right?
0: It's about six years later, but it's very much building on the goodwill of it. Like you can see National Treasure in this film.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, we're taking these tried and true properties It's right there in the title. We've got a sorcerer, so we've got magic, and then we've got an apprentice, which is all about the teacher-student relationship, right?
1: I have to tell you, Joe, I was last night, I was like, hey, Devin, do you want to watch Sorcerer's Apprentice with me? And he goes, oh, you know, I hate Harry Potter.
0: (laughs) well it's funny because when i said that i was watching it, somebody else was like oh is that like that cirque de freak movie which it turns out is a different movie about a magical apprentice that one stars john c Riley, but is apparently also quite terrible and we could also do it sometime in the (laughs) i shouldn't say is also terrible
1: yeah i enjoyed this way more than artemis fowl I enjoyed this way more than I just expected to.
0: So I'm not a huge fan of Nicolas Cage, as people from my other podcasts will know. I quite enjoy mocking him. He's mostly okay in this. I feel like this role is actually leaning into his better... Let's Mm. say he has a peculiarity when it comes to his acting decisions. Mm. And in this case, the film seems to acknowledge what works best in that regard, and it allows him to do those things.
1: All right, I guess. Fair. (laughs)
0: some of his line deliveries you just think that is a weird weird way of saying it and yet it kind of works in this regard because he's meant to be somebody who's lived for thousands of years who's also been living in a vase for 10 years yeah and just kind of doesn't care about blending into the real world even as he very specifically states that no one in the real world should notice that magic exists
1: and yet walks around in a floor-length leather coat
0: I love the costuming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will say that, uh, so the titular apprentice in this film is played by Jay Baruchel. Mm -hmm. I find Jay Baruchel wildly charming.
0: I normally do. He has a very quirky, cute element working Mm -hmm. for him. Mm -hmm. So folks will recognize him from any number of texts, but uh, particularly I think the big one is the Freaks and Geeks de facto spinoff, right?
1: yeah undeclared you're thinking undeclared undeclared? yes yeah yeah Mm -hmm.
0: and of course if folks didn't know he is a canadian so that's one of the reasons that we were able to justify doing this because it's like oh okay well this is a big budget blockbuster with a canadian star in it
1: he's aggressively canadian
0: (laughs) he is very aggressively canadian yes not so much in this movie but no
1: in general you should all follow him on twitter if you want to know more about canadian cinema because as near as i can figure all he does is smoke weed and watch canadian movies
0: I mean, smoke them (laughs) if you got them. But kids, stay in school and don't get. drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a very silly movie. As we mentioned off the top, it is celebrating its 10th anniversary this week, which is part of the reason we wanted to do it. But I'm intrigued, Brenna, thinking about what we just talked about in terms of like contextualizing. Mm -hmm. How old does this movie feel to you?
1: Uh, It starts off set in 2000. Mm Mm-hmm. It could easily be a movie from 2000, I feel like. Right. You know what I mean? Like, not just because of the soundtrack. Um
0: <laughs> Oh, the soundtrack is on point for 2010. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't dislike this film, but I'm also very clearly not the target market for it. And I had a really hard time getting into it or caring about anything. Like, I enjoy Jay Baruchel, so mm-hmm. I was interested when he was on the screen, although I sent Joe a series of texts that he found deeply annoying. (laughs) Because this is yet another movie where nobody knows how a university works.
0: No. Well, I mean, we couldn't even tell if it was a university at the beginning. We weren't sure if this was high school or university. (laughs) And then we couldn't tell if he was a TA or an instructor or just a senior (laughs) student who was tutoring.
1: (laughs) Don't set movies in universities if you're not going to bother to learn anything about how they function. (laughs) Like... As it turns out, you get to see his current student record in one scene, which mm-hmm. puts him in a second year physics class, but somehow has his own lab where he's yes. making giant Tesla coils.
0: Yes, which look like a public danger. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he would have been flagged by the police as a person of interest who they might be keeping an eye on in case he wanted to, you know, get up to some nefarious activities.
1: It's very odd. All of it is very odd. But, you know, I do think he is charming enough and the love interest is sweet enough that...
0: Uh, You pay some respects to Teresa Palmer. She is now our most addressed actress on this show.
1: What? I've seen her before?
0: She is the lead from A Discovery of Witches as well as the female lead from Warm Bodies. Oh. She's also Australian.
1: Oh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so I liked their relationship. I was interested to see how it worked out. I found them both very cute. Yes. I don't fully understand what was happening with Nicolas Cage and his love story. I found that difficult to follow because I wasn't interested in it at all. I mean, fair. <laughs> and, um... Yeah, this movie was fine, Joe. I'm still not 100% sure why I watched it. Yeah, it's
0: amusing. (laughs) So if folks don't know, part of the reason that this film got made is A, because Nicolas Cage wanted to make a big-budget magic movie, and also B, because it has ties directly to Fantasia, which is, of course, based on an 18th century, 19th century poem.
1: So 1797 for the original German version, Uh and then the 1890s for the Paul Ducasse French version, which I read the translation of into
0: okay
1: English, yeah, yeah, no, I lied. I read the Goethe version. huh I read Goethe for the show, Joe. There you go. Look how learned I am.
0: You're so smart, right
1: <laughs> It's fourteen stanzas, and it's all just about mopping
0: right yeah <laughs> because of course people remember the infamous scene from fantasia which was an adaptation and in that case you know a very brief adaptation of a sorcerer's apprentice who loses control of his magic and ends up nearly washing the world away and that scene gets played out very similarly here in the film but it's kind of hilarious because it feels like the least well thought out yes! of the film like it feels so <laughs> artificially inserted in here and you're thinking oh this is the impetus for this movie
1: (laughs) it makes no sense in the context or how long is devoted to it although i will say some of the most charming cgi in the film i think is the mops and how the Mm -hmm. mops become like his pets yeah
0: the personified mops yeah i do like it when they mirror jay baron facial expressions at one point
1: i like the ones that when he's trying to talk to the girl and they're climbing up his back (laughs) and, like, poking at him and stuff. I thought they were pretty cute. It's
0: very amusing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I should also reference one other person just because I like it when he shows up and I feel like I'm actually paying attention to him more now, is actor Toby Kebbell, who is the evil sorcerer's apprentice in this movie, and he's playing a riff on a Chris Angel British magician. So he walks around in platform heels and he has, like, a wig wardrobe of Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek.
1: I was gonna say he looks like the wild love child of chris angel and zoolander yes
0: yes all of these comparisons work and i kind of found him fairly adorable in this
1: yeah i liked that i liked the comedy beats from that and in fact the movie does have moments where it's quite funny mm-hmm. i'm not sure it's always intending to be funny some of the things i found funniest but i did find it mostly charming yeah
0: I mean, all this to say, if folks were looking for an anniversary watch of very little consequence, just kind of park your brain and watch the movie. Yeah.
1: You could do worse than The
0: Sorcerer's Apprentice and color me surprised.
1: I would say it is by far the best M.O.P. related adaptation we have done so far on the show.
0: High praise indeed. All right. Well, folks, I think that'll wrap up this unusual mini-sode <laughs> on The Sorcerer's Apprentice, as well as some listener emails and some homework updates.
1: If you want to tell us that we've missed the point of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, or if you're German and Sorcerer's Apprentice actually means a great deal to you, mm. and we have mocked it too much.
0: <laughs> we do have German listeners. We do we have clarify. German <laughs> listeners.
1: I was realizing that, like, this poem is actually very well known in the German-speaking world. Okay. Yeah, because it's good to... Um, you can write to us and yeah. tell us that. Uh, if you want to talk to me on the Twitters, I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you?
0: I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B.
1: Or you can find both of us with the hashtag HKHSpod. And if you've got something longer, go ahead and send it to HKHSpod at gmail.com. Keep your letters coming. And of course, we're always welcoming new minisode ideas.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So moving forward, next week, we're back to a full length episode. And we're going to be talking about Nicola Yoon again, Brenna.
1: We are. The sun is also a star.
0: Yeah. I always want to change that and say the sun is always a star, and that's not right.
1: (laughs) I always mix it up with another YA book called I'll Give You the Sun that has an almost identical cover. It's very distracting.
0: That's not helpful at all.
1: Not at all. (laughs) Um, And then the week after in our next mini-sode, we're actually going to be taking a look at a Netflix series, No Good Nick, that you might want to check out before we get there. Mm Hmm. Joe, I actually finished the first season of it today. Oh,
0: Oh, yeah, that's right, because there's multiple seasons, aren't there? There's only two. Okay.
1: It's got me totally sucked in. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it because I think you'll be far more cynical about it than I am.
0: Oh, I mean, this is how our dynamic works.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And then, Joe, I'm also going to give a heads up to people that we're going to be talking about Diary of a Teenage Girl the next week. And the only reason why I'm telling people that ahead of time is because we do have listeners to like to read along with us. And that one's longer than you think it's going to be.
0: Yeah, it's not a straightforward comic. It's quite text heavy. So It's very text heavy, Yeah, yeah. And it's also not a super popular text, so it's sometimes hard to get a hold of, as I discovered.
1: (laughs) This is autobiography. Well, wait. (laughs) This is autobiographical, Joe, isn't it?
0: Oh, I so want to keep in your first take.
1: (laughs) 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 This is the problem with not volunteering to do any of the work, because I have no control over whether you're going to leave it in or not. (laughs)
0: This is true. So true.
1: (laughs) All right, folks. So until next time, I shall see you on the page.
0: And I will see you on the screen.
1: Keep taking care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.